um, August 17th, 1.28 a.m. All right, guys, so if you're enjoying the show, please go ahead and please leave me a rating and a review if you have the time. Um, I really like this person's call or this person's attitude going into this phone call. It was really, really positive and very um, cheerful um, and humorous. Uh, definitely enjoyed it. I hope you guys do too. And you should guys should definitely let me know your thoughts. Yo, Jackplex, answer the fucking phone, dude. I'm a therapist. I'm a uh, children and young people therapist. So I work with families as well. Like I've been kicking around for ages, just doing like all sorts of things and like mental health, social care. I guess my first job in the field was um, the one I'd mentioned before about working in um, advanced dementia, like as an advanced dementia support worker. And you talk about the nitty gritty and like getting down to it. That that is like, you, you see all the sides of humanity in that job. Like you see everything. My favorite, my absolute favorite is for like working with um, older people who were like on the high dependency area, which is kind of like shorthand for their dementias progressed and or they've got other shit going on. Uh, but like the, the ones who were the rowdiest, I, I found the most interesting and I felt like I wanted to help them the most. A normal day working there, I'll kind of walk you through a bit of it if you want to hear. You'd get ready, you'd have handover, you'd find out what had been going on in the shift before, who's had their meds, who hasn't, who might have uh, been given PRN, which is like they've become really agitated and you're trying to find ways to de-escalate things. Um, so you find out stuff like that. I'd go around, make, make some cups of tea, have a chat with people who, some of whom non-verbal but you still want to talk to them because like they can hear and they're people that deserve your time and like you want to give it to them i would be helping people get dressed changing clothes multiple times because they fairly often soil themselves and not realize helping clean their nails i used to love giving manicures to like little old ladies who were uh, their, their fingernails would sometimes get quite long and a bit gnarly and have like all sorts of gunk under them. So I'd sit down with them, make them a cup of tea and help clean underneath their nails and trim and paint them a nice colour and just like chat away to them. Sometimes though, I'd have shit thrown at me, literally. I have had a handful of shit slopped onto my arm and then just like wiped down me. And I'd be like, oh, well, thanks for that. I've had it given to me. I've had it rolled up into a little ball, like a Malteser. Do you have more teasers? I do. I I do yeah. actually. She's in the <laughs> other room right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, like rolled into like a perfect little ball and just given to me. Like it's like the greatest gift in the world. Like here you go, love. And I take them. Like, oh well, thanks. I'm thinking that is shit. Like shit in my hand. I know it, but they don't. They think they give me something really nice, and I don't want to confuse them. So I go. Oh, thank you. And then like walk along when I get an opportunity to like sneakily drop it in the toilet and like disinfect my hand when they're not looking, then I will. 
but yeah, you can't, you get immune to stuff like that. My husband always, <laughs> he, he tells me that he used to tell when I'd had like a really trying shift because I'd come home, all he would hear would be like me kick off my shoes, me like go upstairs and the shower go on. I would be like, I used to get right in the shower because they're shit in my eye. <laughs> One of the first questions that comes to my mind as you talk about all that. So you've brought up, I think like a lot of small things that you had to deal with, cleaning out people's nails and of course also metaphorically and literally all the shit that you had to deal with um yeah so in witnessing all that how does that kind of affect your view on mortality well it's, it's that, that that that's like a a, a little question <laughs> that leads to like a massive sea of answer for me like it's kind of dipping the toe into like the ocean of uh, other things i suppose like for me like seeing people uh, their most kind of raw and visceral. Uh, like I've I've been attacked by people because they didn't know who I was. They couldn't understand what I was doing or if I was trying to help them. And literally, they were living on like their their primal instincts of like fight or flight. And these were fighters, as I found out. And for me, it taught me something about myself, which was that I wanted to help these people and I wasn't afraid of them. It's like when you hear a siren or something, someone's either coming towards an emergency or going away from it. And I felt like I was someone who was like heading towards the things that people tend to run away from or not want to get involved in. And I feel like I shared some really amazing, amazing moments with, with these people. And it, it made me feel really, kind of really grateful, really aware of like how important being kind is and that this could, this could and probably will happen to most people. And what you want is someone who's going to be kind and take the time to take care of you, I suppose. It made me appreciate life a lot more. It did give me a lot of other kind of food for thought for um, things like end of life care. Like I've, I've sat with people who have been like in the process of passing away, essentially. I believe in all sorts of ghosty things. And there's a lot of, what's the best way to describe it? Superstition, I suppose. Like if someone passes away, you've got to open the window straight away. Like you just have to. It's like this this law, I suppose, in, in these places. Like, oh no, why isn't the window open? You need to open the window now because like a, a lot of the nurses and healthcare assistants think that you need to let the spirit out. Otherwise it's just going to be kind of hanging around. Has it made you think a lot more about the process of death in general? See, I've always had a bit of a morbid, like, preoccupation with death, I suppose. So, like, I, I struggled with my mental health for, like, the longest time from, like, as early as I could remember. And I've always found it just such an interesting subject because it's the kind of thing that you only know when it happens to you, really. Like, I believe in ghosts and I read tarot and... I've seen ghosts and had spooky experiences and all sorts of things. It's, it's like an interest that I've kind of always had. Like, uh, I think that assuming that we know everything there is to know just feels like a really kind of arrogant viewpoint, like from humanity's perspective. Like, well, actually, no, why, why would we know everything? There's probably loads of stuff that we can't possibly know and things that happen on other dimensions that we, we can't perceive. Like ultraviolet light. You can't see it, but apparently it's there and it burns your skin when the sun's really hot. Of course, and because it, there's only five senses and these five senses can only interpret so much 
at a certain point in time. And like you said, how ultra yeah. how that light is, you can't perceive it, but it's still there. And it still has a imminent physical effect on you, depending on how much mm. you're exposed to it. Yeah, It'll definitely. Radio waves, I suppose, as well. Like, if you didn't have something to receive the radio waves, there's no way you could, you would know that they're there. And it so. leads to like a sort of a bigger realization that we all don't really know anything, I think, I feel. Like, what's in front of you is not exactly what's there, if that makes sense. Yes. And there's no yeah, way... Yeah, it's our brain trying to make sense of it. Like, our brain's filling the gaps for the bits that would otherwise confuse us. So th this is taking the conversation in a slightly different different direction. I hope you don't mind. But like, so I've taken drugs, many drugs in my past. I was in rehab and stuff, so yeah, definitely too many. But um, some of the ones that didn't uh, wind me up in rehab, like MDMA, I've I've tripped and I've watched things, I've seen stuff with my own eyes and I've been going, I know that's not real, that can't possibly be real, but my eyes are telling me this is real and I would swear like on a Bible or whatever anyone wanted to put in front of me that I could see what I could see, even though I knew it wasn't there. And I found that really like eye-opening for me as well. Just like, wow, like there's no way that I could prove that I'm seeing this, only the fact that I feel that I am, I can see it, but I also know it's not there because it's not possible to have flowers growing out of your walls. But that's another <laughs> thing too, right? Because then it makes you think about how real emotions even are in the first place too. And how if you feel something, then it must feel real to you in that moment, if that makes sense. Oh, it, it really does. And the, the stuff that I do now, so obviously I'm a therapist now, so I work with kids and young people, usually like teenagers. And for someone who maybe hasn't experienced mental health challenges or is ignorant to them or just hasn't kind of come across them, it can sound bizarre, like someone who's sitting there and looking at them you think this person's got everything to live for like this is a kid that's really bright they look really happy and healthy they're really sporty all of this stuff and then this person says oh actually i self-harm my family have had to lock up all of the shops in my house because i can't be trusted and i think about trying to take my own life like all the time and you just think like wow and someone who doesn't understand or appreciate or even want to connect with someone like that their response would be like What's wrong with you? What have you got to be upset about? It's a response that I had myself when I was young because I was in that position, although I was never sporty. I hate exercise. It's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's the difference between, I suppose, trying to invalidate someone's experience and trying to meet them on their level. And be like, actually, tell me about what's going on with you. How are you doing? Why? What's making you feel this way? How can we work together to find ways that make things a bit easier for you but yeah it's the best job in the world i absolutely love therapy being a therapist and what i can also appreciate about at least like the 12 minutes or so of this conversation that we've had so far too is that i feel like so far it really put it puts a <laughs> good grand scope of how first of all the physical reality that's in front of you i mean as we both discussed already it's impossible to perceive all of it with your human senses alone and yeah. on top of that Especially earlier, I was reading a lot about Carl Jung and his theory on um, the conscious and unconscious. And beyond mm -hmm. that, too, there's a whole world inside each individual human being inside of you, just inside your yeah. active imagination, inside how you perceive things and how you don't perceive things and how you feel about things. Sometimes you don't even understand how you feel about certain things or how you might be feeling that day. And all these different things lead to like completely different, almost 
I'd even go as far to say completely different worlds inside each different person. To garner an understanding of yourself is incredibly difficult, let alone somebody else, because you have to trust what it is that they're saying too, which is why validating people is so important under the basis of honesty. I'm so like amazed and like my, my interest is so piqued by everything you've just said, simply because like I'm writing a paper at the moment as part of my, um, so I'm, I'm doing like a course for my therapy and it's like a reflective one. So I'm watching back one of my therapy tapes with me and a young person and commenting on the session. I've picked out a specific focus. And what I've chosen was that young person having created, they've created their own word essentially to describe this complex mass of feelings that they've got associated with their depression. So they've got like the, the lethargy, like they feel lethargic, they've, they've got no motivation, they feel, they feel just sad and empty and all of these things and they said you know it's just like Blair and I said yeah it is like Blair should we call it Blair going going forward they're like yeah all right and now like whenever I see them we talk about feelings Blair is always mentioned we talk about whether it's extra Blair or like less Blair and I've been doing some research about like shared language, creating language, uh, the impact of naming emotions, all of this stuff. So I find it really interesting you saying about um, people in different worlds and having different experiences inside themselves with feelings because I think a good way to bridge that is coming up with words that someone can understand. It's like a really deeply personal and just conveys meaning better than like how standard words can. Speaking of meaning too, <laughs> what I was gonna ask, what I wanna also establish too. So at one point you were a nurse mm -hmm. and then you are now currently a child therapist. I am, yes. Was there anything that happened um, in between or was it just a shift from um, one to the other? Oh, it, 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 was, it was very much a journey. Um, so, what, what kind of what prompted it? I had like I had this epiphany moment. It was before I started working with dementia. I had been working with my previous employer, which was it was very like person focused, but it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. I'd been doing it for over seven years, and just one day it just struck me, and I just thought like I feel like a corporate bore. I take no joy from what I'm doing, and I feel like I'm giving absolutely nothing. And because I'm giving nothing, I'm getting nothing back. I have no job satisfaction recently so it was about a year after she was born and like it was like an earworm like once I had that idea in my head I was like I feel like I have to do something I can't just pretend I haven't had this thought so I was like right I'm, I'm just going to do something that I think would be meaningful so that's when I started working there handing my notice when right I'm kind of done doing this I've, what I said to my manager was that I'm on the wrong path and he was like I see what you mean I said, I've been coasting along, this this job's been easy money, but I am on the wrong path and I need to do, I feel like I'm not doing what I should be doing. So he said, okay, I left. And then I started um, dementia work. Then I became like a mentor as well. So like hanging out with people young and old, like I think the company I worked for, the youngest pe uh, people they worked with was four year olds and the oldest was people like who were a hundred. And it was just that they'd um, assign you to someone based on interests and things you had in common. And you'd agree some goals with them and just basically put your heads together and figure out what you wanted to do. So I worked with loads of like young autistic lads 
because I like wrestling, I like uh, playing computer games, I love Fortnite. I, I'd spend so much of my time just like going out into the city, getting some milkshakes with one of these lads and then playing, playing Fortnite for a few hours in a gaming arena just to like get them out and about and engaging more socially. I loved it. I've also run like support groups and stuff as well, like in my spare time. I get like this sense of achievement and meaning that I've never had before in a job. Like sometimes, e even like with the dementia stuff, which was hard, like sometimes I'd come home and cry because I'd have bruises all up my arm where um, an old lady had given me a dead arm by just punching me really hard and then clawing at me. I'd come home and cry, but I would still feel like I'd made a difference. I had that before in a job and I'd been working for, started working at 15, so probably about 15 years, because I'm fairly old now, so. What was it that attracted you more to this? And I guess we could also label it as a sort of like the world of an individual. Because the way I see it is uh, being a nurse is, of course, it's like a physical and mental job in the sense that you're going yeah. to be physically aiding this person and also giving them mental support. but. I feel as though it leans slightly more to the physical, just ever so slightly. I feel like as a therapist slash social worker, that leans a lot more into kind of going into these different, as we've discussed before, worlds of each different individual. What gratification do you get from that? I, I just, I find it really breathtaking that just say you're walking down the street and you walk past, I don't know, 10 people or 20 people, like each of those has got all of these experiences and all of these interactions and all these memories and feelings. It's like a, a spider diagram that starts off at the middle and just branches out and branches out. And it's like, if you speak to that person, you interact with them and it's just on a really small, basic level, you've kind of become part of their story and they've become part of yours, even if it's in some really minor way, which I just think is like, I, I can hardly get my head around it, just thinking about it. But then I think when there's people who like really are in need, they feel so isolated and alone and frightened. I want to be the person who like tries to alleviate that a bit or in some small way makes them feel seen. I think especially older people with uh, things like dementia and Alzheimer's, those are such intimidating health conditions. Like families don't know how to deal with it a lot of the time making them feel like they're visible when most of the time they feel like they're not. I got such joy from it and doing that with, with young people, like mental health was always my first passion. I never did anything with it when I was at school because I was too afraid. I was too afraid to do psychology A-level because I was worried what I might learn about my own mental health. And it's funny now because <laughs> I'm doing this qualification um, in CBT, being a therapist, working with young people, providing interventions with them. And it's like, well, actually, I know what it probably would have told me about myself, and that's okay. Is there any particular moment that you had um, back when you were a nurse that still sticks out to you to this day? Okay, so you shouldn't have favourites when it comes to like patients and like people you work with, like clients, I suppose. But I always had favourites. I, I have favourites now, like among my young people. There's one who is my absolute favourite. I think they're just awesome. They're all awesome, but this one's particularly awesome. But when I was doing my dementia stuff, there was this one little old lady who was just my favourite. I think other other staff that I worked with had favourites too, but 
I don't, I don't think she was many other people's because she was largely non-verbal. She would try, she would try and talk, but you couldn't always understand. So you had to rely a lot on like the body language, the non-verbal cues, um, knowing what kind of things she liked, what things she didn't like were, were really helpful. You had to kind of compensate for the fact she couldn't just say, oh, hey, Liz, like, I want this or I don't like that. You, it was kind of guessing games, but like, based on knowing this person, right? She was one of the ones, she was the one who gave me the rolled up Malteser of poo, which I thought was funny. And she also threw some at me once, but that's another story. But she, she said my name once and I looked her in the eye and I went, did you just say my name? And then she just went back to kind of trying to talk and it not making a huge amount of sense, but I would kind of nod along and go, oh, okay. like as if what she was saying did make sense because I didn't want her to feel embarrassed. And But I was like, you said my name and got a bit tearful. And she kind of looked at me and smiled really shyly, like how like a little kid might smile if you say something nice to them. They go all coy and a bit embarrassed. And I was like, you said my name. Like That's touched me so much. And that's something that was one of those moments that made me feel like I am where I need to be. That, that, that's a pretty pure moment. Moving from being a nurse over to also being a child therapist, how do you view the difference in at least overall a child's mental state as opposed to an adult's? Oh, that that is that's a massive that's a massive question. I wrote a paper actually about um, the adverse childhood experiences of our aging population. It, so it's basically there's there are. It was nine when I was learning it, it might be more now, but these are certain experiences that a child or young person might have, um, which can unfortunately affect their future outcomes. So these can be things like their parents have poor mental health and they come from a home with separated parents. They've been exposed to violence between parents. They've been abused themselves. So psychologically, emotionally, physically, sexually, financially, all the different types of abuse. Basically a list of all of these experiences that if a child or young person has been exposed to in their formulative years, like when they're growing up, then it's likely that their outcomes aren't going to be as great as members of the population who weren't exposed to those. It can affect your a child's internal nervous system, their car cardiovascular system, their brain development. Um, it all centres around exposure to trauma. Like if I was going to say it in a sentence, I'd be like, right, if there's a kid that is exposed to trauma, um, their body goes into the fight, flight, freeze or flop state. And that causes a lot of long-term harm. So it's like, you know, if you saw a bear in the woods, I I've never seen a bear in the wild. We don't really have them. In fact, we don't have them at all in the UK. But like, I'd imagine if I saw one, I would be like, fight, flight, freeze or flop. Probably flop because I tend to fall over when I get scared. <laughs> but you'd be terrified, right? And it's your adrenaline, um, your adrenaline response. But then what happens if the bear comes home every day into your house? Because it's not a bear, it's a parent or someone who comes into your home that provokes that response in you. It's this prolonged exposure to stimuli which provokes this response in you and it means that parts of your development are impacted 
for most of, if not all of the rest of your life. So it's linked to loads of poor outcomes like addiction, um, diabetes, heart problems, nervous system, mental health issues. It's, it's like a kid getting PTSD, but with or complex PTSD, but without getting any support or any kind of diagnosis, they're just left to fend for themselves. So they create all of these, like what we call maladaptive coping mechanisms, which are the things that you do, they worked once, you think they'll work again, make you feel better, but actually they're not great. Like you had a beer because you had a rough day at work and it made you feel better. So next time you feel rubbish, you have a beer and then you have another and another and then you end up binge drinking. That's that's an example of one. Yeah, so I wrote this paper um, because like the point that I was trying to make was people who are like really old nowadays, like in their 90s or 100s or 80s, 90s to 100s, because yes, there are people who are that old, like the oldest I ever saw was an 100 year old. My own great aunt lived to be 100, which is just wild. But like th- these people, if they didn't grow up during World War Two, they grew up in a kind of post-war society, which was traumatised by the horrors of war. There was rationing, there was absence of family figures, there was death, there was all of these really traumatising things that they were exposed to, combined with the fact that they grew up in, like, society back then. Like, you weren't allowed to be gay, you could be, like, thrown into prison until, I think it was, like, 1967 or 1969, just for being gay. You could be trans, there was all of these things, little knowledge and understanding about mental health, no support for it. So what the point I was trying to make was like a load of the old people that are wandering around are traumatised and have been for their whole lives because of what society's been like. And young people, it's like kids now, a lot of them have high ACE scores too, but it's usually for different things. So this all kind of leads me to um, think in the past, as you've mentioned before, throughout society, it's been a common theme. And I guess we can label it sort of like a denial of the individual world in the sense of um, the persecution against people who have been gay, um, people who have been trans, um, different races, et cetera, et cetera. And as humanity generally, I would hope and I would think overall tends to come to a conclusion of accepting each individual world do you think that humanity overall would achieve a higher form of consciousness if that makes sense i hope so i i've talked with my husband about things like the singularity do you know have you heard about like singularity theory and having your consciousness transferred and i have Ah, good. You know what I want about. Awesome. Yeah, like, I kind of, I hope that by the time we achieve the singularity, if indeed we do, he's adamant that we will at some point. It's like, no, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, and it's a matter of if we're still alive when it is. So I'm like, okay. I would hope when that is achieved, we've reached the stage of acceptance. And if we can't be accepting and understanding of how different other people are and kind of celebrate their little worlds and appreciate them then i'd at least hope that we can be curious about them and not be kind of judgmental and write people off just because they've got what society tells us is an undesirable uh, characteristic what do you think what are your thoughts on it 
I had a discussion about this not too long ago with another individual, just in, in a different sense, though. And uh, we were talking about the world more so in a political sense. And he his his entire um, argument was that the world or he I think he brought up a quote from Karl Marx, I believe. And Karl Marx had once said the world he said something along the lines of the world will only end up in two ways, um, that of communism or that of barbarism. And I think that's reflective more so in the sense, not in a political sense, but in an individual. If we're going to deem consciousness as awareness, being aware of how intricate the world is around you, not only in the sense of the physical or of, or of nature of, of trees, plants, animals, but also of the humans around you and how complex your own world can be alongside another person's, I think that over time, I think that we will reach that point. Because if we don't, I think it'd be fair to say that we wouldn't live that long as a species, would we? No. Definitely not. Like, I think it's in that sense that it's... It's like, evolve or become extinct, I suppose. Like, as weapons get bigger and, I don't want to say better, but more dangerous and more lethal, more precise. And it's, it's funny it... because you can direct your intelligence towards making something so intricate to destroy, but sometimes it's easier to do that than to understand. Yeah. I think I think Arthur Schopenhauer once said that the fundamental characteristic of genius is to see the intricacies in the particular, meaning that if you see an ant, you can see how that impacts the entire ecosystem around it. And for some reason, I don't know, I think that that characteristic is hard to develop amongst large groups of people. Maybe because we're a tribal species and we tend to find groups some way or somehow instead of seeing the the gray you know yeah and actually there's there's this specific um psychology term called the individuation which is largely like it, it's like a, a pack mentality trying to like sum it up fairly succinctly would be like the thin end of the wedge would be a load of football fans who are at a stadium seeing their team play and they're all doing the Mexican wave and they're all cheering and it's like they become one for a moment. But like the thick end of the wedge is things like um, Nazism, um, the Third Reich, things like that, where people join together and kind of psych each other up, egg each other on, lose most of their inhibitions and create echo chambers where they're justifying constantly these things that they believe and they lead to actions and then they all end up doing absolutely awful horrendous things and yeah there's been studies done comparing like individuals versus groups of individuals and like how their behaviors change when there's a lot of people versus where is where there's just one person and also there's there's societies which are very much about groups and not going against the grain so like i think in america and a lot of parts of europe being fairly independent is is largely celebrated, like striking out on your own, being like a self-made man or woman, having the right to self-identify all of this. Whereas in other parts of the world, a lot of it is about blending in and being part of the culture, not doing things that might bring dishonor or embarrassment. And it's just really interesting looking at those, like looking at different social models and going, oh, this is interesting. Again, it's all people in different worlds and I, I can't help but wonder about those living in places 
different to me how they feel and how like their own internal worlds are going in closing do you have um i think anything that you'd want to say for the whoever's listening <laughs> for the listener um i think there's so much more to to life and to the world than like what we can see and what we can measure and what we can perceive like i've seen and experienced things that they are so hard to explain it's almost as if they're beyond world. I've seen things that I couldn't possibly prove, but I would still sit here and it would be my hill to die on that I've seen them. I'd be like, no, I have seen that. I think in a world where things are quite uncertain and it's really important that we understand each other or at least try to and be curious and don't be dicks basically. Um, I think being kind and just making an effort, like even if you make an effort and it doesn't work or you get nowhere. I think the fact that you have tried and wanted to make the world better rather than just being like, fuck everyone, I don't care. All I care about is money and screw everyone. Like, I don't think that's the way to go. I think just being decent and honest and straightforward is probably some of the best qualities that someone can have, I reckon.